Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts with the Digital Workspace inner workings. So, Ryan, we, I know we were just talking about how we thought about recording these as videos and putting them on YouTube. So yeah. I was just complaining about the uh, webcam that's built into my laptop being at the bottom of my screen instead of where it normally is at the top of the screen. So I have um, well, I have one uh, Harry Potter book, uh, the seventh one, and one um, anthology, poetry anthology stacked on top of each other and then my laptop to try to elevate it uh, to be a little bit more of a normal web camera angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't understand the the, um, the logic of putting the camera at the bottom. It just makes your angles all wrong. Yeah. Like very domineering looking down on, on the camera. Yeah, so I'm trying to correct it. I know it's, it's kind of a nightmare for this uh, age of video conferencing to have um, such a weird angle, but I guess I, you know, I could be without a uh, camera, which I did lie once on a call and say that um, I didn't have one at home in my home office. Just, <laughs> I just didn't want to, it's not, I wasn't ready for the webcam that day. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you don't look that, it doesn't look that bad now. Uh, and I definitely think that because everyone's been stuck at home, they've had to use the cameras that they previously said didn't work more. Yeah. Um, and I've seen some diabolical setups um, where, where guys are like, they're, they're talking at the laptop, but they've actually used an external camera, which is on their side. Or they've got the laptop on the side and they're talking to the screen where they've got the video call, but the, you just see the side profile of their face while they're talking. And yeah, I, I get people aren't comfortable with it yet, but you think after three months of doing this, everyone would have figured out these sort of basics. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those kind of help articles about how to make a good, you know, how to make sure your lighting's okay and, um, you know, working, you know, working on the angle and like getting a decent video conferencing setup because it's not just work right it's like all of the all the socialization activities you know hanging out with friends that kind of thing so people i think there is more interest you know before i didn't use my webcam that much so it wasn't you know a huge deal that it's this terrible upshot but um now that i'm using it all the time it's like okay maybe i do need to find a solution to this problem yeah it's weird uh i mean i've, I've been looking at uh, i've got a, a desk light now for my camera, which I don't think really works because you still the side's still dark, so I need to look at another solution for that. Um, and I'm now going to look get a standing desk, which means I'm going to have to move my my study around. Uh, and I'm actually looking more and more at how the light is in the room to decide where I'm going to put the desk, because um, yeah, it makes a big difference. And I and I realise it makes a big difference to how tired I am. If there's not enough light in the room, I get more and more tired. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's not a, I'm sure someone will come out with a study or something that says fatigue from, from radiation from the screen versus natural light um, that's affecting everyone's productivity. 
in this world. Yeah, my apartment gets very little light and it's so early here. So there's really not a lot, a lot of light in this room either. So I feel you on that. For the standing desk, are you getting one of those that um, stands on top of your existing desk or are you going for the full thing? No, I think I'll go the full thing. Um, I've looked at those those um, ones you put on your desk and what I, what I think is the problem with those is that it's, it's, and some look really good and very really clever, but I think you end up with the same problem that you would with a normal desk is that you don't stand as much because you're going to have either you get they aren't very very wide ones they're sort of um 120 centimeters uh, i don't know what that is in inches um but that's just enough to have your laptop and maybe your mouse but it's not enough space to have your notes and your diary and your whatever else and, and my my desk has got you know ipad iphone the microphone the laptop you know docking station all that stuff so there's a lot of stuff to have on the desk so I really want the full piece that goes up and down because mm-hmm. I, don't have to re, I don't have to reorientate myself while I'm working if I go up or down. And, and the desk will pretty much be in the standing position all the time anyway. Um, that's the other, other reason. Um, so I'm looking at one from Ikea, um, which I think is probably the best of the bunch. Not the most expensive. I mean, you can go more expensive, but it's about 405 pounds, I think, or something like that. So I don't know, at five hundred dollars, give or take. Mm-hmm. But it does have it's electric. It's electrical one as opposed to a manual one, with the memory settings and it, and you can set up you know via app what what you want it to be and stuff like that. Uh, and it's quite a nice big one. I think it's one hundred and fifty centimeters of depth by um, no, doesn't sound right. I think it's well. It's 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 bigger than my current desk lengthwise, and it's very deep, so there's mm-hmm. lots of space. And I think that's going to be the best one to go with, um, for me at least. So yeah, and then once that's in place, then because it, it, I'm finding that I, if I work the whole day, my back is absolutely um, wrecked the next morning, and it takes me a good half an hour to stretch it out, and and then you can just go sit and do the same thing again. You can sit in a, in a chair and, and a desk, and you get and, and the other thing is you start hunching. Um, so I really want to get away from that. I mean, I used to work for UBS, which was the first place that I ever had a standing desk. You know, I used to stand seven, eight hours a day and, and only sat down like really, um, when I was trying to do some, um, well at the time, you know, some, some, some deep thinking work, but most time I was on the phone call. So I'd stand and I'd just walk around and stand and walk around. And, you know, if you do, if you're writing light documents or whatever, typically standing is perfectly fine. Um, so yeah, that's my thinking. We get approval from the boss, then I can bring it in. <laughs> nice. Well, let me know if you like that one because I have an IKEA not too far from me, and I have also been thinking about upgrading to a standing desk. So good to know that they make one. <laughs> they do. There's, there's a lot of in the UK. There's a lot of options, uh, and you're looking to spend um, between three hundred and, and seven hundred, from what I've seen. And IKEA seems to have a nice mid-range option, which gives you all the bells and whistles, but it's not as expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. as, um, so one of the guys at work has bought one, so I'm waiting for his to arrive. And then once he's had his one, then I will <laughs> probably buy that one. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we're at home all the time, so it makes sense to, to invest in a, in a proper working space. Exactly. I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to be back in the office. It's- I don't know if it'll be this year, so I'm going to bite the bullet and 
make a real office. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. That's I mean, this my office will become my 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 daughter's room at some point. So I've got to do this while I can, um, until I get moved out to the the shed outdoors or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a few weeks away, right? Well, when she's born, she'll stay. Uh, she'll sleep in our room with us mm. at least for the first six months. Uh, depends how big she is. I mean, she's going to be big, but depends on big. She is. <laughs> um, and then we'll look at you know either at that point I'll move out of this room and she'll move in here, and I'll move next door to the, the spare room, which is quite, which is quite big. Um, or I will go to a um, is a Regis next down the road from me. It's about a ten minute walk, um, and I'll just rent space there um, and see what that depends on what that costs, of course. Uh, but that might be the way to go. Yeah. Only the only tricky thing about that, and I know we're going to talk about something else, but the tricky thing with when you start renting space is that when you start committing to that space, um, and in these registers, you're typically committing to what they've got, not necessarily what you've got. Um, so if I want to use my standing desk, then I may not be able to bring that in there. But that's a mm. that's a problem to solve at that point. Yeah, for another day. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you'd wanted to talk about. The question of, um, you know, should I learn to code? Should everyone learn to code? Um, yeah, so I get this question, not, not necessarily once a day, but I used to get it quite a lot, um, where someone that's not grown up in the technology world has this, this, this fear, let's say, that they, they don't know enough and they need to get into it, they need to understand it and whatever. And, and often it's, you know, what should they do? And... You know, these are these are typically people that are accountants or lawyers or uh, you know some sort of professional um, skill set, and they're not exposed to technology per se unless they have you know unless it's part of where they work. So, for example, they get they get lab, um, they get given Office three six five to do their email. They get and do their, their documents. Um, they might have a line of business application that that's been built for them. So, in the legal profession, you've got something like Ghostwriter, which is the legal you know generates legal documents and that sort of thing. But they don't really understand the underlying pieces. They just know how to use the technology, the tool. So the question normally comes about, so so how do I, and I think this is a future-proofing, um, uh, what's the word, uh, step. So by learning the stuff that they, they can either uh, pivot into, you know, a more technology-centric role, or they're just trying to protect their job so they don't get, get caught unawares. Um, so normally how I answer the question is that, yes, I think, I think people should learn how to code. Uh, they don't need to go and build a, uh, an, an application that's going to be sold to, to millions. I mean, if you can do that, do that. But it's really to go through the thought processes um, and then learning, you know, programming is a very linear, linear so much, but it's a very logical step-by-step uh, -step process. And I say not linear completely because you can get to a point where you're doing things out of sequence. Um, which is you know really fast iterations, and I'll explain what that means in a sec. But but the idea is that by learning to program, you learn how to ask good questions, um, and by planning things before you actually just dive into writing code. And um, where I say you can get into sort of parallels, if you're working with someone else, you're learning how to collaborate with someone who's working on the same code base, but might be in a different part of the system to where you are, or even overlapping with you, and you're learning how to get to cope with that. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the evolution, but uh, to answer the question, I think everyone should learn something. 
the future proofing element reminds me of the film Hidden Figures. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The women who worked for NASA and then they were, you know, being the human computers and then the ones who, the black women who learned to code where, um, like they made themselves indispensable by switching that skill set. Um, and I feel like this whole conversation around, you know, is my job going to be automated away or the, you know, is automation or robots coming from my job? I feel like that's something I've seen a lot about in the last few years, um, especially, you know, with AI becoming more a common part of a lot of software and, and starting to become something that's less, you know, novel and more just an expectation that you're going to, tr- you know, find a way to work machine learning into your software product, right? If it makes sense. Um, so that's all very interesting. I guess um, I'm curious what, what languages, uh, what coding languages, you know? Uh, well, that's a good question. I have to count. Uh, and I, when I say no, that it doesn't mean I'm an expert by any means. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at any of them. But but I typically write quite a lot in C Sharp. Um, I've been learning a lot of JavaScript recently. Um, so uh, that's that's been a bit of a focus. That's really to automation stuff on the iPad. Um, I know Pascal back in the day. I mean, I learned some basic. Um, but nowadays, as I say, C Sharp, I did a bit of VB6 back in the day. Um, Java, part of my university. Assembler is part of my university. Um, PowerShell I use now as as sort of one of those other tools. Uh, I'm learning Python, um, which I think most people should learn Python. That's probably the most popular and probably the easiest one to pick up. Um, I've written some stuff in Swift. Uh, I couldn't get my head around Objective-C. I did some C++. Um, long before C Sharp was popular. Um, yeah, I think, anyway, yeah, that's PHP back as well, uh, ages ago. So about 11 or 12 languages. There are a lot of coding languages. <laughs> that's not even <laughs> all of them that I know, and I'm not a developer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things, you know, when, you, when you're learning something, it depends on who you're around. So I learned a lot from my friends who wanted to do something. Um, and it was a case of, well, we need some help writing this and I'd have to go and learn how to help them to write it. But the concepts are kind of all the same. You know, a lot of those languages are object oriented. So, so as long as you understand an object oriented programming, you can pretty much pick up those with syntax. And um, my, my biggest problem now, for example, I've been working on something for work, is I've forgotten a lot of things from a syntax point of view. So I have to sit and Google and go, oh, okay, this is how you do that. Or, I'm making a very basic uh, thing where I, I show it to another developer who writes every day and he goes, oh, I can't believe you made that mistake. I'm like, yeah, me either. Can, yeah, you know, but it's just it's just a, a practice thing. If you, if you don't practice it, you forget it. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, but I don't think everyone needs to know, you know, 12 languages. I mean, it's the same as you don't need to know 12 um, you know, linguistic languages. It's good to know one or two and be good and really proficient at them. Um, you know, something like C-sharp is quite a structured um, and quite a rigorous language. So you have to follow um, the, the sort of how the framework works and, and, and do it very, um, uh, what's the word? It's, it's quite a verbose thing uh, when you want to do something. Whereas something like Python is quite, quite flexible, quite quick and easy to use. Um, you know, you might write in one line, which you'd write in five lines in C-sharp. 
Um, and when you're writing a big application, those lines become pretty important to to minimize. Um, so yeah, it's I, I stick I would say Python for, for anyone trying to start it out. Yeah, I only know a little bit of HTML and CSS, which I don't even know if that is quite the same as those other languages. Because I mean, for me, I have you know the practical application of doing a lot of a lot of website work. Um, so if I was going to go ahead and learn another one, I feel like maybe JavaScript would make sense next. Yeah, so, so most people would not consider J, a C, CSS or HTML programming language. Yeah. So they, they would be considered markup. Yeah. Um, JavaScript would be your first, your natural sort of step neck uh, into that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is why those sort of questions become very nebulous with people and you start sort of talking about all these things and it sounds very complicated, but actually it's, it's not, is I think, you know, from a business discussion and, and, and if any of you can find the person that's willing to do this, for them to understand how long, why things take so long to do. And if you, if you think about building a web page, a very basic web page, it's very easy to put that together in HTML um, because it's just, you're just writing text, you know, in the sense of like you would a word document, you have titles, you have bullets, you have, um, you know, paragraphs, you have a header, a footer, you know, very simple, very, very easy thing to, to translate. And your CSS or your cascading style sheets just give you colors, you know, and, and, and colors for certain things. You know, all my tables must be blue with the border of three and whatever it is. Um, that's pretty easy because that's static. That doesn't change. Mm -hmm. we're, we're having something like, you know, JavaScript in or any other sort of language, um, you're now starting to bring in dynamic content, which mm -hmm. means starting to understand rules and and dynamic in the sense of if I'm logged in, show me this screen. If I'm not logged in, show me that screen. And that's where it can become very interesting to, to plan your work, uh, which is why I say I think everyone should learn how to code something because you learn to either, you can either, I mean, you can literally sit down and write code and, and go with the flow but you end up writing twice as much, uh, if not three times as much, than if you planned it first um, and, and then wrote the code. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, this thing I was working on, I, I had an idea in the morning, so I went and wrote it, and then I actually went for a walk with my son and went, actually, that was such a stupid thing to do because I wrote the stuff for, an hour, for like two hours and then went back and just deleted it and put in two lines, and I did, this, did the same thing more efficiently and... Um, with a better result. The question is, did, would I would I have done that if I didn't write the two hours before and really got into the problem and tried to solve it? Um, but yeah, get, so go right to the point I was trying to make. It, once you understand how long it takes to do these things, you know, build a web page, building a dynamic web page, etc. I think the appreciation for what a dev team puts out in two weeks and why you need to have the people to, to do it and why you have different roles in the team becomes a little bit more understandable. Um, and why the investments are what they are in building software. Um, and what, you know, just because just you throw a, you just got an idea for an app, doesn't mean you can just throw it over to someone and say, oh, we'll build that and come back to me next week with it. It might be mm -hmm. six weeks or a year, whatever it is. Yeah, my, my boyfriend's a software engineer, so I'm definitely familiar with a, a project um, seeming as, you know, simple enough on my end but you know when he talks about you know the work that goes into developing it like the complexity even something like we were talking the other day about needing to change 
um, just a little bit of text that kind of showed up throughout um, the product that he's working on. And it was like, oh, well, that should be a simple enough switch. Right. But there was, you know, it was I, I don't I don't have the language to articulate it, but it was just touching so many other things that it was going to be, you know, it could break this or that. It wasn't so simple as just, um, you know, replacing that item. So definitely, definitely a lot. Yeah, and that's that's a very good um, actually language is one of those ironically one of those those things. So you can design your user interface, which is what the, what the users will see, based on English, for the most part, because that that works out fairly well, and you can cover most most countries in the world. The challenge comes in is if you want to make your application a multi-regional or multicultural, and you want those labels to change based on on the users culture when they log in. So let's say you've got a, um, an English organization, but you've got companies that, you know, sort of head offices in Germany or Sweden or, or somewhere else, Switzerland, where they've got French or German or it's Italian. You know, those, those are fairly easy to, to work out what's on the screen. Um, but now your every label has to, has to be able to change based on, um, what language you're looking at it in. So it's a web application. Um, but you need to have someone who translates that word. Now, you have two problems that needs to come out of that. One is the word that you use in English may be a different length to the word you use in German or, or Swiss or whatever it is. Um, then you also have the, the, the sort of right to left country. So anything in Arabic will be different lengths as well. So your whole screen layer can change, uh, which is a bit easier in way, but very difficult on a, on a thick, thick application. Um, and then, of course, you have going into the Asian languages, you know, Japanese or Chinese, which are vertical. How do those look on the screen? And your whole sort of configuration changes. In some cases, some applications are basically built again um, because they didn't do the research, didn't think of that stuff up front. But then in your same balancing act, you're like, well, I've got to build this product to go and sell it. I can't think of all these problems right now as I'll never build anything. So you build the easiest thing, which is English, and then you worry about those things later on. Um, and you hope that what you have to change doesn't affect the whole product, mm -hmm. which most of the time it does. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious. I know, um, you know, I know SysTrack is in a number of languages. I think I've only seen um, the Spanish and Japanese ones, but curious to see. I know we have it in Arabic, but I, I haven't seen any screenshots, so. I'm curious. Well, well, the other the other challenge you have with with changing languages, and, and that was specifically a thing with SysTrack, was that the database had to go from being Latin based to being Unicode based, mm -hmm. which was a fun. I mean, it sounds really easy. Oh, we'll just we'll just change the cor the correlation, um, but actually, it probably meant you know a substantial amount of re rework because um, because Unicode treats characters slightly different. Mm. And I mean, then this going back to the sort of business use, I don't think they need to care about learning that sort of stuff. I mean, yes, if they just go for it, but but just just the basics of, you know, building a a task management app, which which would test a lot of. I mean, following the samples, one the examples, one thing, but but building it and then changing it to to sort of suit your own needs, that that will sort of give the experience of what a developer goes through when they're trying to build an application where the functionality has to change. Mm -hmm. and how to extend it or, or contract, uh, contract it um, based on um, what the needs are. Yeah. 
So have you, I, I, I've used a little bit of W3 school in the past. Um, what have you, what tools have you learned to, or used to learn all these different languages? Um, well, when, before the, before the internet existed, like it does today, uh, you know, if I go back to sort of VB6 or Assembler or any of those things, in fact, a lot of Assembler was, there was still, you could still search for that stuff online. Um, it was textbooks. Uh, textbooks and other developers. Um, you know, you, you you basically would find a book that was, you know, by one of the big publishers, and go through the examples and learn that way. And then obviously get to know people who knew the language around you, and you'd learn from them. Um, nowadays, it's it's a lot easier just to Google examples, and and most developers aren't really writing stuff from scratch. They are copying pieces of code that they're finding online and then redoing it into their application. Um, which which typically works okay if you understand the code. Um, the problem is most people don't understand the code. So when it doesn't work, they don't know why it doesn't work. Um, that's normally the sign of a good developer versus a bad developer. Um, that said, uh, there are a few sites that people that usually end up on, um, which I can't think of. Stack Overflow would probably be the main one that I think of. And, and there you sort of write the question. I'm trying, like I was trying to do something with regular expressions today. So I, I Googled C-sharp regular expressions um, and I come up you know, a whole bunch of pages and I sort of go through that looking for what I'm, the, the sort of problem I'm trying to solve. And then I look at the code and go, okay, I understand what they're trying to do. And then I, I use that code. And then that becomes part of your arsenal. You know, you learn, you learn how to do it that way. Um, with Python, which I'm learning at the moment, I bought myself a little Raspberry Pi, um, which, which you can uh, install a Python on. In fact, you use Python a lot there to manage the Pi. And I'm doing stuff for that just to to learn as I go along, um, and that's you know basic stuff. But it's it's just you know a little hobby hobby thing. Um, I, you know, if you if you're really looking for a certification or something like that, there are there are sort of online things like Udemy or um, I think Coursera does one now in a couple of languages. Um, it's, if you don't have any background, then I would recommend definitely going and getting uh, and and. Code, but developing or writing code is is something you want to do, then it's worth going for a full course where they teach you what um, object orientation, um, object oriented programming is and why you do it and all that sort of stuff. Uh, some people pick that up, that up by reading it, um, but typically I think it's good to have a have a course where they they take you through the because it's like like maths you learn it by layers. You know, we teach you how to add, then we teach you how to multiply, then we teach you how to divide, and then to subtract. You, know, you learn in that curve, um, and then it's networking. It's people finding developers that are better than you and, and asking them questions until they tell you to go away. Um, uh, and then you find another one. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is just do it. You know, find an idea, build something, suffer through it till it's built. Because that's what most developers do. They they work hard and long hours to get it done. And, and then realize it's never finished and you've always have an idea to improve it. Mm -hmm. But that's the best way to learn. It's probably why there's so many people that, that do end up writing code, even as a hobby, um, because it's one of those things that you can, you have instant, instant response because either it works or it doesn't work. Um, and you can continuously work on it as, as a pet project um, because there's that tactile feel. Every time I make a change, I can see what that change is going to do. And then I can make another change, and then I have another idea. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I don't like to code, 
is because I know I become completely fascinated by it and it absorbs all my time, even though it's probably done what it's supposed to have done already. Uh, I've always got another idea I want to add in or an improvement or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's not exactly the same, but um, I know, I, you know, I know a lot of the engineers at our company. I know a lot of just developers in general, and I hear a lot of them talk about um, the difference between the coding that they learned to do in school and the stuff that they're doing on the job in that, you know, in school you had the the leisure of like finding the perfect way to do everything. Um, and you know, that's what you were graded on, but then on the job, there's a lot more of like, Oh, I'm going to go to stack overflow or, you know, you're like, you're really finding like the most efficient way to do things. Right. And not, um, the theoretically perfect way. Um, so that just, yeah, that just reminded me of stories yeah. I've heard. Uh, so that's so true. I, I remember when I started my Microsoft sort of career, I was uh, doing my tutorials and I got into an argument with the, with the lecturer because what they were teaching them in the tutorial in the real world didn't make any sense. You didn't do it that way. And it, I had, and, and it was one of those weeks where I had, an, and I'll never forget this because I had an argument with the two sort of senior guys on the team, this, this conflict between what they were teaching me at university and what we were doing in the practical world. And going back to the boss, he's saying, but this is, you know, I've been taught this, you know, this is wrong, et cetera. And I got, I actually got failed on that tutorial. But I saw the guy about 10 years later, ironically, in, a, in, a, in an event here in the UK. And uh, we were joking about it. And he said, yeah, you were right. But you see, when, I, when you teach the course stuff, you've got to follow what the course says. And that's the problem is practically what you taught in a degree is about five, 10 years behind what's in the industry. And they're never going to be in sync. So what you learn at university for, for computer science is really just theoretical. Mm-hmm. It's not practical. Um, I, I'd probably say that most most of those developers that unless they were doing stuff on the side um, would would had to have done two or three years somewhere else before they came to work at Lakeside to so have the have the basics um, because mm-hmm. you don't you don't walk out being ready to code uh, at a university. Yeah, I know. I mean, we're right next to the University of Michigan and I know there's a lot of initiatives there for I think most of the developers I've talked to did some sort of, um, you know, some sort of side project, some internship somewhere nearby. There's a lot of opportunities there, whether it's working, um, doing something for the hospital or I've, you know. Yeah. So there are but a few things that a few projects that um, a lot of opportunities, I feel like to do that. Yeah, either either you're gonna you're gonna give them um, graduate work first, and and you educate and, and you basically treat, teach them as grads, um, or you're gonna look look at them doing hobby projects. You know, a developer that comes in and doesn't know how doesn't have a hobby project that he's been working on or she hasn't been working on, you're not gonna be getting the best developer. You're gonna get a nine to fiver, um, and I mean I say this sort of tongue in cheek. That's not a bad thing. But if you're looking for top-notch, you know, really, really high-caliber talent, they've got they've got hobbies, um, and and those hobbies are still more coding. It's not less coding because they are absolutely, you know, bought into that realm. Uh, I mean, I remember I worked with a guy who wrote um, his own version of Search for SharePoint. Um, at the same time, he was working on Mozilla Fire, Mozilla browser. Um, you know, this and this was a search that we won awards for. That that's now the search you have in SharePoint. Um, well, it's not his search, but it's the same same design. 
you know, you know, he's that kind of, it's that kind of caliber. So if you're looking for that, you want, you want to see the side projects. You want to know that they are constantly challenging themselves with the most complicated problems. Mm-hmm. So, so you haven't, uh, you haven't learned anything from your boyfriend on, on coding yet? Um, no, I mean, I probably could, if I would, he just built a discord bot not too long ago. Um, I definitely could have jumped in a little bit on that project. Um, no, actually, funny enough, um, I asked for, I think it was my birthday a couple of years ago for this coding kit that is, you know, it's a Harry Potter themed one. So you get this like wand and it's designed for kids, right? Obviously. But I was like, maybe this will motivate me to code. And it was the same year. I think I bought him the Nintendo Labo stuff. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with that, but like the cardboard that you fold up and you know, he kind of did a few of those projects and abandoned that. And I did a few of the coding projects and abandoned it. So I actually, with you bringing this topic up, I'm curious to delve back and try it again. Um, Cause the problem I was having at the time was that I was trying to use the iPad for it. And it, um, something about where the, however the device was sensing the, the wand wasn't sick wasn't syncing up right. So I need to try like a laptop or, or something else. But I am curious to see if, if that kind of thing can, you know, cause I feel like the approach there is going to be very different. If it's, it's geared towards children, you know, you're learning in a way that's a little bit more, um, I guess less overt than if I learned, um, you know, the, the theory, um, itself. So I don't, I don't know if it'll work for me or not as well to try to do it in the more hands-on kind of way. Yeah. I bought that Harry Potter thing for my wife ages ago. She's never yeah. used So, <laughs> um, I, I do the Odinio stuff. I did the Odinio stuff for a while, which is a, again, it's like a little raspberry, not a raspberry Pi, but it's a very similar little thing. And you, you can wire up lights and resistors and capacitors, all electronics. Um, and you can write a bit of Python for that. Um, and that's that's not too bad, but I um, I find with that stuff, uh, a friend of mine is really into it. He pulls a lot of really cool stuff. Like he manages his uh, he's got his whole house back in Joburg has got um, solar panels with batteries, and you know his pool works on this sense this setup, and he's got um, you know something else set up in the garden. You know he's got all these little things that he's built. Uh, so I definitely think that they're quite powerful. I mean they're much more powerful than they were or as options five ten years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it does come down to just sitting down and doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, see, I had this vision that I could then program this wand to do things like, you know, turn on my smart lights or turn them off or like, I don't, I don't know if you can connect those things in any way, no. but no. no so, so what you could do with the Ordinio, mm-hmm. uh, because when you when you buy the Odinio, it's a I bought a little kit and it's about you know sort of rectangular block and on there is all your chips and stuff, but you get mini ones which are probably um, you know let's say uh, probably the same size as this 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 um, AirPods case, um, and that can you you can put an accelerometer on that you can put, and you can buy that all up and this friend of mine does these sorts of things he'll he'll join them all together and you'll three D print a box to put them in. You could you could do something with that that would, would plug into your Wi-Fi and and do stuff because the little components are available. And you you know it's amazing what you can buy and they're not expensive. You know you're talking about a dollar two dollars a component. Um, so it's not expensive to build anything. 
Um, so that would work. Not with, not unfortunately not with the Harry Potter wand. Yes, sadly. <laughs> but but I would. There's actually a very good um, channel on YouTube. I can't think of what the guy's name is. He's a mechanical engineer, and um, he actually built a um, a golf club that had a whole bunch of actuators on it. So that basically, it's one club that does all the clubs, and mm. it changes the angle of the the face depending on which club you're going to use. And then it also uh, ch- changes the face to keep the um, to keep you straight when you hit the ball. I need to see if you can improve your scores and that. Very a very clever thing to watch. How you build. I mean, this thing's got wires all over the place and whatever to make it work. But it's fascinating. And that's the kind of thing. You, that's the maker world, um, which I think is there's a lot of people making stuff during this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I what I need is just a project, a goal, you know, learn it to do something with it, not just for the sake of it. So I know, you know, you mentioned building your own sort of simple task management app or, or whatever you would, however you would apply the code. But I think maybe that's a, just a strategy for learning it in general is to, to be building something. Definitely, definitely. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, I, I, for example, in our old house, I had a huge issue with um, humidity um, in the bathrooms. So I built a little sensor um, with the Wi-Fi. So it was, I mean, it was probably uh, probably as big as a baseball uh, with the sensor and the Wi-Fi unit, and then a and, and a double uh, two A that two double A batteries to, to power it, and that measured the humidity in the room. So I could see what part of the day was days were the worst. And then use that as a way to change the heating in the house because that was probably that was causing uh, the issue with the damp. Um, they're very easy things to do once you get your head around them. Um, nice and simple problems to solve. Great. Well, now I feel like I need to go learn to code, but <laughs> we will see. I do have I do have a teacher if I if I need I mean, one. Honestly, I would probably say if if you if you really. Um, I mean, the, the, the Raspberry Pis are really good and they're not, they're not expensive. You're looking at $35, I think, or $30 to get one. Yeah, but, we have one. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've even looked at it, but yeah. Oh, there you go. There's a it's accessible. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good challenge. I mean, my brother uses them quite a lot. Like he's, he set up one as, a, as his VPN client um, for his house, his, for his proxy as well. So they're nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these quite a nice... Um, uh, magic mirror that some of these guys make where they use a Raspberry Pi to to power a, a, like a TV um, so a nice thin, thin LED and, and it goes and collects like your weather information, your diary, all that kind of stuff. And they put the TV on a, on a frame and then they put a mirror, uh, a, a, not a mirror but it's a, it's a type of glass or it's a glass with a treatment on it. So you can see through the mirror to the screen but you can also see yourself in the mirror and that's called information on it. So you can see your diary and all that stuff. And then the pie is keeping it going, for you, keeping it refreshed. Um, and then you're just, you've got this, you know, beautiful magic mirror, as they say. Um, that's a nice project to do as well. If you're, if you've got the, the carpentry skills. Yeah. Is that how the new, have you seen the new like fitness mirrors that are like, um, yeah. like Peloton, but in a mirror form where you can, I've not seen them, but I, but I would expect it's exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, if you if you look at the, I don't know what the fitness mirrors cost, but I think you're probably looking at about two hundred dollars to build yeah. the, um, 
and I think they probably do other things as well. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the next thing you had in your house was it was a mirror that you looked into that told you all about your your weight and your you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Or a smart mirror, let's say more than a magic mirror. Yeah, I like magic mirror more. Everything is smart now. <laughs> Got my smart lights, my smart coffee maker, my smart mirror. Do you use much smart stuff in your house? Um. Yeah, I have the the hue bulbs. Um. Oh. Smart speakers. I think that might be kind of the extent of it. The lights are kind of, you know, it's nice um, to be able to, you know, I have the ones that aren't just um, white that do different colors. So it's not something I use a ton for that purpose, but just, you know, dimming them and, you know, leaving the house, having them automatically turn off once you're a certain distance away or turn on when you're you know, coming home is nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we've got, um, downlighters now, so I don't know if I can get something for that. I think I've changed the light switches themselves. Uh, so that's my next project once we, um, get there, I guess. Um, but I quite liked having, I had a nice reading light that I used to set on, on schedule. And if we went at home and the dogs were in the lounge and, and all that sort of stuff, it would automatically turn on mm-hmm. just useful stuff like that. Quite, I quite like it from that point of view. I haven't like my neighbors, they've got, um, they've settled, they, they've got colors in the garden and the colors change based on the schedule. And if they're watching a movie and they have a, a sort of movie scene come lighting and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I know, I know when they're watching a movie. <laughs> That's really fun though. <laughs> cool. So, so you're going to learn to code. That's, that's the next challenge, huh? We'll see. I might break out that Harry Potter kit again just to see, just to make the purchase worth it. But I'll give that a go. Good stuff. How's your um, your ergo going? Your your rowing thing? Going going really well. Very happy that we made that purchase. Um, and it came with a year subscription to iFit, which is just one of these like you know has workout programs on there and a lot of rowing workouts and it syncs with the machine. So it, it'll up the magnetic resistance for you. Um, Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it just is like a guided, guided workout. Um, actually the series I'm doing now was filmed, um, the guys rowing in Zambia and I'm actually finding it very stressful because he's on this river and he's talking about how there's like hippos all around and crocodiles and he's like constantly it feels like he's dodging the hippos and he's talking about how deadly they are and i'm like why are you rowing on this river <laughs> so i feel like that's like just getting my heart rate up like worrying for this guy um but is i it, mean is i that, guess yeah is that any audio or is that video as well a video okay that's pretty yeah cool. they so must they're on the same route as peloton then or one of those other things yeah, so that's been, I think, you know, I think I'm hooked on that subscription because it just, it uh, is very nice to basically have that personal trainer kind of component where they're telling you what to do. And I do think it helped me learn um, to row better, you know, to understand power versus speed um, mm. of rowing. So get my technique down. So cool. Yeah. I recommend yeah, I've been impressed because we, as part of our health membership, we got four months of uh, Peloton to use uh, during the pandemic, uh, well, while the pandemic is going on. And I've been impressed with that experience in the sense of the personal trainer, 
doing the class. I mean, I don't do the live classes. I do them sort of the next day or whenever I want to do them. Um, but just having this person who's recognizing other people while you're working out, even though you know that it's a recording, um, it's quite good. Quite like that. I might, you know, if I ever get the money, invest in a Peloton or something similar, just because it's nice. I like the interactive nature of it. Yeah, and I think it's nice too to sit down for like, you know, 40 minute, 45 minute class, whatever it is. And then you're in that class, you know, versus if I was just doing it on my own, maybe with some music or watching something else, it'd be more like, well, I feel at a certain point you're, you might be more aware of like physical discomfort and it's like, you might not make it as long, um, as like an interactive class component. So. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's a good, because I was doing, um, insanity videos before that and I was kind of getting bored of doing the same routine all the time and i mean they're still tough they, i mean it's not like i can do them without breaking a sweat they are they are still tough but it's like oh okay no, i don't like this exercise i don't i don't really want to do this one you just get into that sort of thing whereas by doing the peloton ones which are still you know head workouts every single one i don't know so it's completely new and fresh and um every so i'll still mix in my insanity ones because i think the insanity ones are tougher um but at least i'm breaking them up with you know completely fresh material that's always refreshing um, which is, which is also quite nice. Yeah. Some of the rowing workouts are, are hit style where you'll row for a bit and then get off and do different things. And some of them involve like, um, you'll put your feet on the seat and do sort of like inchworm plank kind of stuff and use the machine as like a different sort of workout tool, which is very interesting. So definitely more creative than I, I would have been on my own with it. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing is that, that, you know, some of the stuff you think, where did these guys come up with this? Where did they think of, you know, doing this on the machine? Because you just get on and row. Um, but yeah, I could, I could definitely see how that's interesting. The only problem is now I really want to try out row, like actual rowing, you know, in a boat. <laughs> okay. But I don't know when I'll be able to um, get my hands on that. So need to train up so that by the time I do it, I'll be... It, it will be a breeze. <laughs> Have you, um, you do, did you get my invite to join on, on Apple watch? No, I don't. Again. I'll I have to check in my, I've it's... never, sorry. sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I've, I was just going to say, I've never connected with someone on Apple watch before. So I don't know which, how the um, thing pops up. I sent it to your Gmail account. Okay. Right. So I don't know what you, what you, what's your Apple ID? Is that Gmail or something else? I believe it's my Gmail. I've had it for so long, but it should be my Gmail. I probably just need to check my email. Well, yeah. Cause it's, uh, invite again. So I've just sent you another invite now. Okay. Um, my, my Gmail tends to get buried in a lot of just, you know, <laughs> That's cool. Uh, now. Otherwise, you can always invite me, and then that's it's easier. Yeah. Cool. Well, then I'll have to be honest with my uh, stay honest with my uh, my workout <laughs> schedule. Like, someone, yeah. someone knows. <laughs> that's well. That's that's funny. That's what it is. I, my mates, my mates come over my watch. And I'm like, oh, I haven't done anything today, and they've done you know a workout or they've been playing golf or something. And I'm like, oh, I need to go work out. It's the right thing. It's good. It's good and healthy. Yeah, our time zones are going to be very different too, which is 
Well, you're going to wake up to me having done my workout every morning. <laughs> yeah. Ryan's already done it. I haven't even woken up yet, and Ryan's already <laughs> done his workout. <laughs> Super. Should we close it off there? Yeah, I think so. I think we're cool. good. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes at the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website www.digitalworkspace.works and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.